Welcome to the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. From late July to the end of August, we are taking a short break from our usual weekly book reviews, and instead I'm reading aloud the complete novel Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't yet listened to my introduction to Man Alive and my brief analysis of the book's characters and themes, check out my most recent book review, episode 26 of season 2, from July 14th. Today's episode is an unabridged recording of the first half of Man Alive Chapter 7, but be aware that my narration occasionally deviates from the original text when I encounter profanity or offensive language. This happens rarely, but I am omitting just one or two words in this chapter since I'm not comfortable using that kind of language. That said, I think and I hope you'll enjoy the first half of this chapter of Man Alive. Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 7 The Two Curates, or The Burglary Charge Arthur Inglewood handed the document he had just read to the leaders of the prosecution, who examined it with their heads together. Both the Jew and the American were of sensitive and excitable stocks, and they revealed by the jumpings and bumpings of the blackhead and the yellow that nothing could be done in the way of denial of the document. The letter from the warden was as authentic as the letter from the sub-warden, however regrettably different in dignity and social tone. "'Very few words,' said Inglewood are required to conclude our case in this matter. Surely it is now plain that our client carried his pistol about with the eccentric but innocent purpose of giving a wholesome scare to those whom he regarded as blasphemers. In each case, the scare was so wholesome that the victim himself has dated from it as from a new birth. Smith, so far from being a madman, is rather a mad doctor. He walks the world curing frenzies and not distributing them. That is the answer to the two unanswerable questions which I put to the prosecutors. That is why they dared not produce a line by anyone who had actually confronted the pistol. All who had actually confronted the pistol confessed that they had profited by it. That was why Smith, though a good shot, never hit anybody. He never hit anybody because he was a good shot. His mind was as clear of murder as his hands are of blood. This, I say, is the only possible explanation of these facts and of all the other facts. No one can possibly explain the warden's conduct except by believing the warden's story. Even Dr. Pym, who is a very factory of ingenious theories, could find no other theory to cover the case. There are promising perspectives in hypnotism and dual personality, said Dr. Cyrus Pym dreamily. The science of criminology is in its infancy, and... Infancy! 
cried Moon, jerking his red pencil in the air with a gesture of enlightenment. Why, that explains it. I repeat, proceeded Inglewood, that neither Dr. Pym nor anyone else can account on any other theory but ours for the warden's signature, for the shots missed, and the witnesses missing. The little Yankee had slipped to his feet with some return of a cock-fighting coolness. The defense, he said, omits a coldly colossal fact. They say we produce none of the actual victims. Well, here is one victim. England's celebrated and stricken Warner. I reckon he is pretty well produced, and they suggest that all the outrages were followed by reconciliation. While there's no flies on England's Warner, and he isn't reconciliated much. My learned friend said Moon, getting elaborately to his feet, must remember that the science of shooting Dr. Warner is in its infancy. Dr. Warner would strike the idlest eye as one specially difficult to startle into any recognition of the glory of God. We admit that our client, in this one instance, failed, and that the operation was not successful. But I am empowered to offer, on behalf of my client, a proposal for operating on Dr. Warner again, at his earliest convenience and without further fees. Hang it all, Michael, cried Gould, quite serious for the first time in his life. You might give us a bit of bally sense for a change. What was Dr. Warner talking about just before the first shot? said Moon sharply. The creature, said Dr. Warner superciliously, asked me with characteristic rationality, whether it was my birthday. And you answered with characteristic swank, cried Moon, shooting out a long, lean finger, as rigid and arresting as the pistol of Smith, that you didn't keep your birthday. Something like that, assented the doctor. Then, continued Moon, he asked you why not. And you said it was because you didn't see that birth was anything to rejoice over. Agreed? Now, is there anyone who doubts that our tale is true? There was a cold crash of stillness in the room. And Moon said, Pax populi vox dei. It is the silence of the people that is the voice of God. Or in Dr. Pym's more civilized language, it is up to him to open the next charge. On this, we claim an acquittal. It was about an hour later. Dr. Cyrus Pym had remained for an unprecedented time with his eyes closed and his thumb and finger in the air. It almost seemed as if he had been struck so, as the nurses say, and in the deathly silence Michael Moon felt forced to relieve the strain with some remark. For the last half hour or so, the eminent criminologist had been explaining that science took the same view of offenses against property as it did of offenses against life. Most murder, he had said, is a variation of homicidal mania. And in the same way, most theft is a version of kleptomania. I cannot entertain any doubt that my learned friend's opposite 
adequately conceive how this must involve a scheme of punishment more tolerant and humane than the cruel methods of ancient codes. They will doubtless exhibit consciousness of a chasm so eminently yawning, so thought-arresting, so... It was here that he paused and indulged in the delicate gesture to which allusion has been made, and Michael could bear it no longer. Yes, yes, he said impatiently. We admit the chasm. The old cruel codes accuse a man of theft and send him to prison for ten years. The tolerant and humane ticket accuses him of nothing and sends him to prison forever. We pass the chasm. It was characteristic of the eminent Pym, in one of his trances of verbal fastidiousness, that he went on, unconscious not only of his opponent's interruption, but even of his own pause. So stock-improving, continued Dr. Cyrus Pym, so fraught with real high hopes of the future. Science, therefore, regards thieves in the abstract, just as it regards murderers. It regards them not as sinners to be punished for an arbitrary period, but as patients to be detained and cared for. His first two digits closed again as he hesitated. In short, for the required period. But there is something special in the case we investigate here. Kleptomania commonly conjoins itself. I beg pardon, said Michael. I did not ask just now because, to tell the truth, I really thought Dr. Pym though seemingly vertical, was enjoying well-earned slumber, with a pinch in his fingers of scentless and delicate dust. But now that things are moving a little more, there is something I should really like to know. I have hung on Dr. Pym's lips, of course, with an interest that it were weak to call rapture, but I have so far been unable to form any conjecture about what the accused, in the present instance, is supposed to have been and gone and done. If Mr. Moon will have patience, said Pym with dignity, he will find that this was the very point to which my exposition was directed. Kleptomania, I say, exhibits itself as a kind of physical attraction to certain defined materials, and it has been held by no less a man than Harris that this is the ultimate explanation of the strict specialism and very narrow professional outlook of most criminals. One will have an irresistible physical impulsion towards pearl sleeve links, while he passes over the most elegant and celebrated diamond sleeve links, placed about in the most conspicuous locations. Another will impede his flight with no less than forty-seven buttoned boots, while elastic-sided boots leave him cold and even sarcastic. The specialism of the criminal, I repeat, is a mark rather of insanity than of any brightness of business habits. But there is one kind of depredator to whom this principle is, at first sight, hard to apply. I allude to our fellow citizen, the housebreaker. 
It has been maintained by some of our boldest young truth seekers that the eye of a burglar beyond the back garden wall could hardly be caught and hypnotized by a fork that is insulated in a locked box under the butler's bed. They have thrown down the gauntlet to American science on this point. They declare that diamond links are not left about in conspicuous locations in the haunts of the lower classes, as they were in the great test experiment of Calypso College. We hope this experiment here will be an answer to that young ringing challenge and will bring the burglar once more into line and union with his fellow criminals. Moon, whose face had gone through every phase of black bewilderment for five minutes past, suddenly lifted his hand and struck the table in explosive enlightenment. Oh, I see, he cried. You mean that Smith is a burglar? I thought I made it quite adequately lucid, said Mr. Pym, folding up his eyelids. It was typical of this topsy-turvy private trial that all the eloquent extras, all the rhetoric or digression on either side, was exasperating and unintelligible to the other. Moon could not make head or tail of the solemnity of a new civilization. Pym could not make head or tail of the gaiety of an old one. All the cases in which Smith has figured as an expropriator, continued the American doctor, are cases of burglary. Pursuing the same course as in the previous case, we select the indubitable instance from the rest, and we take the most correct cast-iron evidence. I will now call on my colleague, Mr. Gould, to read a letter we have received from the earnest, unspotted Canon of Durham, Canon Hawkins. Mr. Moses Gould leapt up with his usual alacrity to read the letter from the earnest and unspotted Hawkins. Moses Gould could imitate a farmyard well, Sir Henry Irving not so well, Marie Lloyd to a point of excellence, and the new motor horns in a manner that put him upon the platform of great artists. But his imitation of a canon of Durham was not convincing. Indeed, the sense of the letter was so much obscured by the extraordinary leaps and gasps of his pronunciation that it is perhaps better to print it here, as Moon read it when, a little later, it was handed across the table. Dear Sir, I can scarcely feel surprised that the incident you mention, private as it was, should have filtered through our omnivorous journals to the mere populace. For the position I have since attained makes me, I conceive, a public character, and this was certainly the most extraordinary incident in a not uneventful and perhaps not an unimportant career. I am by no means without experience in scenes of civil tumult. I have faced many a political crisis in the old Primrose League days at Hearn Bay, and before I broke with the wilder set, have spent many a night at the Christian Social Union. But this other experience was quite inconceivable. I can only describe it as the letting loose of a place which it is not for me, as a clergyman, to mention. It occurred in the days when I was, for a short period, a curate at Hoxton, and the other curate, then my colleague, 
induced me to attend a meeting which he described, I must say profanely described, as calculated to promote the kingdom of God. I found, on the contrary, that it consisted entirely of men in corduroys and greasy clothes, whose manners were coarse and their opinions extreme. Of my colleague in question, I wish to speak with the fullest respect and friendliness, and I will therefore say little. No one can be more convinced than I of the evil of politics in the pulpit, and I never offer my congregation any advice about voting, except in cases in which I feel strongly that they are likely to make an erroneous selection. But while I do not mean to touch at all upon political or social problems, I must say that for a clergyman to countenance, even in jest, such discredited nostrums of dissipated demagogues as socialism or radicalism partakes of the character of the betrayal of a sacred trust. Far be it from me to say a word against the Reverend Raymond Percy, the colleague in question. He was brilliant, I suppose, and to some apparently fascinating. But a clergyman who talks like a socialist, wears his hair like a pianist, and behaves like an intoxicated person, will never rise in his profession, or even obtain the admiration of the good and wise. Nor is it for me to utter my personal judgments of the appearance of the people in the hall, yet a glance round the room, revealing ranks of debased and envious faces. Adopting! said Moon explosively, for he was getting restive. Adopting the reverend gentleman's favorite figure of logic, may I say that while tortures would not tear from me a whisper about his intellect, he is a blasted old fool. Really, said Dr. Pym, I protest. You must keep quiet, Michael, said Inglewood. They have a right to read their story. Chair! 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 cried Gould, rolling about exuberantly in his own. And Pym glanced for a moment towards the canopy which covered all the authority of the Court of Beacon. Oh, don't wake the old lady, said Moon, lowering his voice in a moody good humor. I apologize. I won't interrupt again. Before the little eddy of interruption was ended, the reading of the clergyman's letter was already continuing. The proceedings opened with a speech from my colleague, of which I will say nothing. It was deplorable. Many of the audience were Irish, and showed the weakness of that impetuous people. When gathered together into gangs and conspiracies, they seemed to lose altogether that lovable good nature and readiness to accept anything one tells them which distinguishes them as individuals. With a slight start, Michael rose to his feet, bowed solemnly, and sat down again. These persons, if not silent, were at least applausive during the speech of Mr. Percy. He descended to their level with witticisms about rent and a reserve of labor, confiscation, expropriation, arbitration, and such words with which I cannot soil my lips, recurred constantly. Some hours afterward, the storm broke. I had been addressing the meeting for some time, pointing out the lack of thrift in the working classes, their insufficient attendance at evening service, 
their neglect of the harvest festival, and of many other things that might materially help them to improve their lot. It was, I think, about this time that an extraordinary interruption occurred. An enormous, powerful man, partly concealed with white plaster, arose in the middle of the hall and offered, in a loud, roaring voice like a bull's, some observations, which seemed to be in a foreign language. Mr. Raymond Percy, my colleague, descended to his level by entering into a duel of repartee, in which he appeared to be the victor. The meeting began to behave more respectfully for a little. Yet, before I had said twelve sentences more, the rush was made for the platform. The enormous plasterer, in particular, plunged towards us, shaking the earth like an elephant, and I really do not know what would have happened if a man equally large but not quite so ill-dressed had not jumped up also and held him away. This other big man shouted a sort of speech to the mob as he was shoving them back. I don't know what he said, but what with shouting and shoving and such horseplay, he got us out at a back door while the wretched people went roaring down another passage. Then follows the truly extraordinary part of my story. When he had got us outside, in a mean backyard of blistered grass leading into a lane with a very lonely-looking lamp-post, this giant addressed me as follows. "'You're well out of that, sir. Now you'd better come along with me. I want you to help me in an act of social justice, such as we've all been talking about. Come along.' And turning his big back abruptly, he led us down the lean old lane with the one lean old lamppost, we scarcely knowing what to do but to follow him. He had certainly helped us in a most difficult situation, and, as a gentleman, I could not treat such a benefactor with suspicion without grave grounds. Such also was the view of my socialistic colleague, who, with all his dreadful talk of arbitration, is a gentleman also. In fact, he comes of the Staffordshire Percys, a branch of the old house, and has the black hair and pale, clear-cut face of the whole family. I cannot but refer it to vanity that he should heighten his personal advantages with black velvet or a red cross of considerable ostentation, and certainly... But I digress. A fog was coming up the street, and that last lost lamppost faded behind us, in a way that certainly depressed the mind. The large man in front of us looked larger and larger in the haze. He did not turn round, but he said with his huge back to us, "'All that talking's no good. We want a little practical socialism.' "'I quite agree,' said Percy, "'but I always like to understand things in theory before I put them into practice.' "'Oh, you just leave that to me,' said the practical socialist, or whatever he was, with the most terrifying vagueness. "'I have a way with me. I'm a permeator.' I could not imagine what he meant, but my companion laughed, so I was sufficiently reassured to continue the unaccountable journey for the present. It led us through most singular ways, out of the lane where we were already rather cramped, into a paved passage, at the end of which we passed through a wooden gate left open. 
We then found ourselves in the increasing darkness and vapor, crossing what appeared to be a beaten path across a kitchen garden. I called out to the enormous person going on in front, but he answered obscurely that it was a shortcut. I was just repeating my very natural doubt to my clerical companion when I was brought up against a short ladder, apparently leading to a higher level of road. My thoughtless colleague ran up it so quickly that I could not do otherwise than follow as best I could. The path on which I then planted my feet was quite unprecedentedly narrow. I had never had to walk along a thoroughfare so exiguous. Along one side of it grew what, in the dark and density of air, I first took to be some short, strong thicket of shrubs. Then I saw that they were not short shrubs. They were the tops of tall trees. I, an English gentleman and clergyman of the Church of England, I was walking along the top of a garden wall like a tomcat. I am glad to say that I stopped within my first five steps and let loose my just reprobation, balancing myself as best I could all the time. It's a right-of-way, declared my indefensible informant, It's closed to traffic once in a hundred years. Mr. Percy, Mr. Percy, I called out. You are not going on with this blackguard. Why, I think so, answered my unhappy colleague flippantly. I think you and I are bigger blackguards than he is, whatever he is. I am a burglar, explained the big creature quite calmly. I am a member of the Fabian Society. I take back the wealth stolen by the capitalist, not by sweeping civil war and revolution, but by reform fitted to the special occasion, here a little and there a little. Do you see that fifth house along the terrace with the flat roof? I'm permeating that one tonight. Whether this is a crime or a joke, I cried, I desire to be quit of it. The ladder is just behind you, answered the creature with horrible courtesy, and before you go, do let me give you my card. If I had had the presence of mind to show any proper spirit, I should have flung it away, though any adequate gesture of this kind would have gravely affected my equilibrium upon the wall. As it was, in the wildness of the moment, I put it in my waistcoat pocket, and, picking my way back by wall and ladder, "'landed in the respectable streets once more. "'Not before, however, I had seen with my own eyes "'the two awful and lamentable facts, "'that the burglar was climbing up a slanting roof "'towards the chimneys, "'and that Raymond Percy, a priest of God, "'and, what was worse, a gentleman, "'was crawling up after him. "'I have never seen either of them since that day.' In consequence of this soul-searching experience, I severed my connection with the wild set. I am far from saying that every member of the Christian social union must necessarily be a burglar. I have no right to bring any such charge. But it gave me a hint of what such courses may lead to in many cases, and I saw them no more. I have only to add that the photograph you enclose, taken by Mr. Inglewood, is undoubtedly that of the burglar in question. When I got home that night, I looked at his card, and he was inscribed there under the name of Innocent Smith. Yours faithfully, 
John Clement Hawkins. Moon merely went through the form of glancing at the paper. He knew that the prosecutors could not have invented so heavy a document, that Moses Gould, for one, could no more write like a canon than he could read like one. After handing it back, he rose to open the defense on the burglary charge. "'We wish,' said Michael, "'to give all reasonable facilities to the prosecution, especially as it will save the time of the whole court.' The latter object I shall once again pursue by passing over all those points of theory which are so dear to Dr. Pym. I know how they are made. Perjury is a variety of aphasia, leading a man to say one thing instead of another. Forgery is a kind of writer's cramp, forcing a man to write his uncle's name instead of his own. Piracy on the high seas is probably a form of seasickness. But it is unnecessary for us to inquire into the causes of a fact which we deny. Innocent Smith never did commit burglary at all. I should like to claim the power permitted by our previous arrangement and ask the prosecution two or three questions. Dr. Pym closed his eyes to indicate a courteous assent. In the first place, continued Moon, have you the date of Canon Hawkins's last glimpse of Smith and Percy climbing up the walls and roofs? Oh, yes, called out Gould smartly. November 13, 1891. Have you, continued Moon, identified the houses in Hoxton up which they climbed? Must have been Lady Smith's terrace out of the high road, answered Gould with the same clockwork readiness. Well said Michael, cocking an eyebrow at him. Was there any burglary in that terrace that night? Surely you could find that out. There may well have been, said the doctor primly, after a pause, an unsuccessful one that led to no legalities. Another question, proceeded Michael. Canon Hawkins, in his blood-and-thunder boyish way, left off at the exciting moment. Why don't you produce the evidence of the other clergyman who actually followed the burglar and presumably was present at the crime? Dr. Pym rose and planted the points of his fingers on the table, as he did when he was specially confident of the clearness of his reply. We have entirely failed, he said, to track the other clergyman who seems to have melted into the ether after Canon Hawkins had seen him ascending the gutters and the leads. I am fully aware that this may strike many as singular, yet upon reflection, I think it will appear pretty natural to a bright thinker. This Mr. Raymond Percy is, admittedly, by the canon's evidence, a minister of eccentric ways. His connection with England's proudest and fairest does not seemingly prevent a taste for the society of the real lowdown. On the other hand, the prisoner Smith is, by general agreement, a man of irresistible fascination. I entertain no doubt that Smith led the Reverend Percy into the crime and forced him to hide his head in the real criminal class. That would fully account for his non-appearance and the failure of all attempts to trace him. 
It is impossible, then, to trace him? asked Moon. Impossible, repeated the specialist, shutting his eyes. You are sure it's impossible? Oh, dry up, Michael, cried Gould irritably. We'd have found him if we could, for you bet he saw the burglary. Don't you start looking for him. Look for your own head in the dustbin. You'll find that after a bit. And his voice died away in grumbling. Arthur, directed Michael Moon, sitting down. Kindly read Mr. Raymond Percy's letter to the court. That concludes today's chapter reading. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me, my podcast, and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in again this Saturday, August 21st, for Chapter 7, Part 2.